0: Brian Stevenson is a lawyer who is a Christian uh, who started uh, an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative um, to, in part, uh, fight against injustice in the legal system, particularly uh, the injustice caused by partiality. He was motivated, he is motivated by his faith, by God's word, and one of the cases he took on early in his career got a lot of uh, media attention, and I want to share with you that story. In 1986, an 18-year-old white woman named Rhonda Morrison was murdered in downtown Monroeville, Alabama. The crime sent shockwaves of fear and anger through the small community. Police could not solve the crime. After six months with no leads or suspects, their attention focused on Walter McMillan. Mr. McMillan was an unlikely suspect. He had no prior criminal history and was a 45-year-old self-employed logger who had done work for many people throughout the community. What seemed to bring attention is that he'd had an affair with a married white woman. A very public divorce between this woman and her husband pulled Mr. McMillan into the limelight, and he soon went from someone having an interracial affair to someone thought to be capable of murder. A white man accused of crimes in another county was pressured by police and ultimately made events, or ultimately made false statements accusing Mr. McMillan of murdering Ms. Morrison. This set off a chain of events that changed Mr. McMillan's life forever. He was arrested by Monroe County Sheriff Tom Tate and eventually charged with capital murder. The sheriff arranged for Mr. McMillan to be placed on death row before his trial when he hadn't even been convicted of a crime. Known to his friends and family as Johnny D, Mr. McMillan spent 15 harrowing and tortuous months on Alabama's death row before trial. Mr. McMillan was with his family 11 miles away from the dry cleaning store where Miss Morrison was murdered at the time of the crime. There were dozens of black people who could testify to his innocence, but they were ignored. The nearly all-white jury convicted Mr. McMillan of capital murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment without parole. In Alabama, elected trial judges were authorized to override a jury's life verdict and impose the death penalty. Judge Robert E. Lee Key overrode the jury's sentence of life imprisonment and sentenced Mr. McMillan to death by electrocution. Mr. McMillan was sent back to his cell on death row where he ultimately spent six years. In 1988, Brian Stevenson met Walter McMillan and began working to appeal his conviction and death sentence. As Mr. Stevenson and the staff of the Equal Justice Initiative investigated the case, they discovered a ton of evidence that proved Mr. McMillan was innocent. They found evidence that the state's witnesses against Mr. McMillan had been coerced, including tape recordings proving that the state's only eyewitness had been pressured to testify falsely, at Mr. McMillan's trial. EJI presented this dramatic new evidence, but it took six years of hearings and appeals before the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals finally ruled that Mr. McMillan's conviction was unconstitutional. A new investigation was ordered. The Alabama Bureau of Investigation ultimately confirmed the evidence uncovered by EJI and determined that Mr. McMillan was innocent. But prosecutors still wavered on whether they would join the motion filed by EJI to dismiss all charges against Mr. McMillan. The case had generated an unusual amount of media coverage. Brian Stevenson and EJI received death threats. Resistance to acknowledging Mr. McMillan's innocence was intense, but the overwhelming evidence of innocence ultimately forced the state to agree to drop the charges. Mr. McMillan was released from death row as a free man in March 1993. Sheriff Tate was never removed from office. He retired in 2019. Mr. McMillan's experience on death row was traumatic. I have suffered pain, agony, loss, and fear in degrees that I had never imagined possible, he testified in 1993. I have survived these six long years, but I am a different man. He explained the horror of seeing seeing seven other men executed during his time at Alabama's Holman Prison. I experienced the executions with the greatest pain and with enormous fear, about whether this would happen to me. From my cell, you could smell the stench of burning flesh. The smell of someone you know burning to death is the most painful and nauseating experience on this earth. The trauma Mr. McMillan experienced led to early onset uh, onset dementia. He had lost his logging business and sold car parts until he became too ill to work. In the last two years of his life, he couldn't enjoy the outdoors or get around much without help. He died on September 11, 2013. Brian Stevenson has many such cases, uh, sadly, of this nature. We are continuing to preach through the book of Proverbs, and we have been considering some of the significant themes and topics that Proverbs addresses. Over the past couple of weeks, we have considered the themes of our words as well as our work. And we have seen the important things that the Lord has to teach us about our words and about our work. We have seen how weighty these matters are in the eyes of the Lord. This morning we are considering a a much lighter and less controversial subject as we are going to study justice and government. One of the things we have seen in the book of Proverbs is that the book was given to the Lord's people to shape their thinking, attitudes, affections, and actions in conformity with the covenant the Lord established and the law that he had given them. Proverbs uses images, poetry, analogies, metaphors, and pithy sayings to impress his law, his character, and his ways on the hearts and minds of the covenant community in a memorable way. The book helps people think God's thoughts, remember his commands, and apply his wisdom. One of the things I pray for our church family is that we will be people who are shaped by God's word, and we will be people who read God's word, study God's word, value the preaching of God's word, meditate on God's word, and ultimately are shaped by God's word. We need to be mindful that our thinking, attitudes, and actions are shaped by God's word in all areas of life. But the subject of justice and government seems to be an area where we are particularly susceptible to being influenced by sources other than God's word. Justice, politics, and government play an important role in our lives. We should care about these matters and engage in a way that honors Jesus, And as we do so, we need to guard our hearts and minds, recognizing that we're not immune to falling into the sinful patterns of the world. We also need to recognize that, for the most part, the news media, political parties, political leaders, and political commentators have no interest in helping us become more like Christ or engage in a way that honors Christ. News media is a for-profit business, and unfortunately, one successful business model involves capitalizing on people's anger. Conservative news media and political commentators are successful when they make conservatives angry with or fearful of liberals. Conversely, liberal news media and commentators are successful when they make liberals angry with or fearful of conservatives. Many of us have experienced this. We see a headline or read a story And it's almost as if we can't help but become angry. It is highly unlikely that your preferred news source desires to help you become increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus and grow in your love for your neighbors and love for your enemies. On the contrary, their agenda usually involves getting you angry enough to keep clicking. Politicians, for their part, use anger and fear To mobilize you to their desired ends. I've heard more than a few people express concern that politicians and political commentators are discipling Christians better than the church. So I ask who is discipling you? How are your views of justice and government being shaped? Where are you placing your hope and your confidence? How are you engaging in these areas in ways that bring glory to Jesus? Justice and government are important matters to the Lord. He has much to say, and as his people, he cares about what we think, what we desire, where we place our hope and confidence, and how we engage and act. With that in mind, we are going to look to Proverbs as well as other scriptures to see what the Lord teaches us. And I want to begin by going back to the beginning of Proverbs. We are going to look again at Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. I will read these verses, and I encourage you to follow along. Again, that is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, fools despise wisdom. And instruction. Right from the beginning of Proverbs, we see that one of the purposes of Solomon in this book was to give wisdom so that others would receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and equity. In light of this, I think it will be helpful for us to ask a series of questions and look to Proverbs and other scriptures for the answers. The questions we will address are these, why the emphasis on righteousness, justice, and equity, what is righteousness, justice, and equity, what is the role of governing authorities, what is our hope, and what is the role of God's people? So first, why is there an emphasis on righteousness, justice, and equity in Proverbs, Well, as I said, Proverbs helps God's people embrace God's laws in God's ways. God's laws and God's ways reflect his holy character. As we are made in his image, we are to reflect his character and nature. The words justice and righteousness that we see in chapter 1, verse 3 are frequently used together in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm chapter 89, verse 14, the psalmist describes the Lord in this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And Psalm 33, 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And in Isaiah 61, 8 we read, For I I the Lord love justice. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. They describe who he is and how he rules the universe. As the Lord loves justice, he obviously hates injustice. We have already seen in Proverbs 6 that the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. We have also seen that he hates a false witness who breathes out lies. In chapter 17, verse 15, we read, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. The Lord uses strong language to communicate his love for justice and righteousness and his hatred for injustice and unrighteousness. The Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, emphasizes righteousness, justice, and equity to shape form, and mold the covenant community in such a way that God's people rightly reflect him. The next question is, what is righteousness, justice, and equity? One of the challenges we face is the confusion and division in our culture regarding what constitutes justice. For example, social justice is a commonly used phrase but means vastly different things Depending on whom you ask, some people use the phrase to describe things that are consistent with biblical teaching. Some people use the phrase to describe things that are inconsistent with biblical teaching. And some people use the phrase to describe things that are outright contrary to biblical teaching. Therefore, I just want to encourage you when you hear someone refer to social justice to refrain from making assumptions or jumping to conclusions positively or negatively. It is much better to listen carefully and ask follow-up questions to understand what they mean and then see how it lines up with God's Word. Of course, if we're going to evaluate ideas of justice based on God's Word, we need to know what God's Word does and does not say about justice. I think this is particularly important for our middle schoolers and high schoolers here today. You will hear a lot about justice and social justice, and it's important for you to be able to discern what is meant by these words, and more importantly, what God's word says about these things, is you're going to hear people talk about social justice in ways that are contrary to God's word. So what do we see in scripture regarding justice? Peter Gentry, in his helpful little book entitled, How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets, writes, Justice-righteousness is another word pair, and it means social justice. This social justice, however, is not what is meant by the term in America today. Rather, it is a way of summing up all the commands in the Mosaic Covenant for the right way to relate to God and to treat people and the earth's resources. As we've already seen, Proverbs is wisdom based on God's law. The first five books of the Bible are referred in shorthand as the law, and they contain the law that the Lord gave to his people at Mount Sinai. So we see Proverbs continually pointing back to the first five books of the Bible as a whole, as well as to the law that God gave his people at Mount Sinai. Proverbs 6.17 points to a foundational principle of justice in the eyes of the Lord that we see in the first five books of the Bible. Namely, the Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, we read, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And of course, one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is, You shall not Murder, The shedding of innocent blood, the murder of another person is condemned, is forbidden in God's word because God is the creator of man, both male and female, and we are made in his image. Therefore, an attack on another human being is an offense to the maker, to the creator of that person. The Lord has made man, male and female, in his image. And therefore every person possesses value in the eyes of the Lord. To attack a person, to shed their blood, is a sin against the Lord. Understanding that the Lord is the creator of everyone and everyone, uh, everyone and everything, and understanding that man is created in God's image is foundational to our understanding of justice. It is hard to have an objective standard of justice without God, apart from God, apart from understanding that God created man in his image. Justice, according to the Lord, also requires that no one is taken advantage of. The Lord opposes taking advantage of those who are vulnerable and weak. In Proverbs 14, 31, we read, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. To oppress a poor man, again, is an offense against God. This reflects what we see in God's law. In the law, the Lord is particularly concerned for the poor, orphan, widow, and sojourner. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 27, the Lord commanded the Israelites, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money, to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall not return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God in his law forbid taking advantage of people who were weak and vulnerable. And he provided protection and provision for them in his law, reflecting his justice and righteousness. In Leviticus 19, the Israelites were instructed not to reap their fields right up to the edge when it was time to reap the harvest. They were not to reap their fields right up to the edge, but were to leave some so that the poor or sojourners in the community could come and reap and have something. So in the law, the Lord made provision for the sojourners or for the poor, so that they would not be neglected. So justice requires not mistreating, oppressing, or taking advantage of the vulnerable and weak. Justice, according to the Lord, also requires right judgments with no partiality. We have already seen in chapter 17, verse 15, that this means not justifying the wicked or condemning the righteous. For justice to prevail, the guilty must be punished and the innocent must not be punished. In Proverbs 24, 23 through 25, we read, these also are sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. So in Proverbs, we see that partiality in judging is not good. Partiality is judging based on something other than the evidence or the facts. Partiality can be shown to people because they are rich. Partiality can be shown to people because they are poor. Partiality in all of its forms is condemned. In Exodus 23, the Israelites were told not to show partiality to the poor or the rich. For to show partiality or bear false witness was to pervert justice. When the Bible speaks of equity, it's speaking of treating everyone equally without partiality. It's not guaranteeing equity or equality of outcomes, but it's ensuring that everyone is treated fairly with equity without partiality. That means if a case comes before a judge, the case is judged, decided on the merits of the case. So the Lord's justice upholds the value of human life as those who are made in the image of God. His justice forbids mistreating or taking advantage of the weak and instead requires that they receive protection and care. His justice requires rendering right judgments, not showing partiality, punishing the guilty, but not condemning the innocent. While this is far from a comprehensive list of God's laws, they do give us a good idea of what constitutes justice in the eyes of the Lord, Tim Keller seeks to summarize the biblical teaching on justice in this way. Giving people what they are due, whether that is punishment, protection, or care. And Tim Challies writes, The Old Testament required the nation of Israel to care for the weak, the vulnerable, the destitute. It required its rulers to govern equitably according to the law of God. Any failure to do so was a grave injustice and brought the threat of God's judgment. Now, as I mentioned, not everything today that is called justice is justice in the eyes of the Lord. And so that is where we need to be careful and where we need to be discerning. I want to share with you a quote from the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, which we have downstairs in our bookstore available For purchase In this book, the author, Thaddeus Williams, seeks to differentiate between justice that is compatible with Scripture and justice that is not compatible with Scripture. So he refers to the justice that is compatible with Scripture as social justice A, and that which is not compatible with Scripture as social justice B. And in the book, he tries to help us navigate and understand the differences between these things so that we can rightly understand justice according to God's Word. Here's what he says early in the book. He says, perhaps we could use social justice to describe what our ancient brothers and sisters did to rescue and adopt the precious little image bearers who had been discarded like trash at the dumps outside many Roman cities. The same two words could be used to describe William Wilberforce's efforts to topple slavery in the UK, along with Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and others in the U.S., Social justice could describe Dietrich Bonhoeffer's and the confessing church's efforts to subvert Hitler's Third Reich. Nowadays, the same word combination could even describe Christian efforts to abolish human trafficking, work with the inner city poor, invest in microloans to help the destitute in the developing world, build hospitals and orphanages, upend racism, and protect the unborn. Let us call this broad swath of biblically compatible justice seeking social justice a when many brothers and sisters hear the words social injustice put together that's the kind of stuff they think about they aren't wrong but for many brothers and sisters the identical configuration of 13 letters is packed with altogether non-christian and often explicitly anti-christian meanings they aren't wrong either in the last few years, social justice has taken on an extremely charged political meaning. Social justice became a waving banner over movements like Antifa, which sees physical violence against those who think differently as both ethically justifiable and strategically effective, and celebrates its un- underreported righteous beatings. Social justice is the banner waved by professors and universities around the nation where the oppressor versus oppressed narrative of Antonio Gramsci and the Frankfurt School, the deconstructionism of Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, and the gender and queer theory of Judith Butler have been injected into the very definition of the term. Social justice is also the banner over movements with a stated mission to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure movements on college campuses that have resorted to violence, to silence opposing voices, and movements that seek to shut down the little sisters of the poor and Christian universities who will not bow to their orthodoxy. In other words, if we paint Christians who sound the call for biblical discernment about social justice as a bunch of culturally tone-deaf curmudgeons, then it is we who are tone-deaf to the the current cultural moment. We are naive to the meanings that have been baked into many minds with the word combination of social and justice. Let us call this second kind of justice-seeking, social justice-be, the kind of social justice that conflicts with a biblical view of reality. So we see the word used sometimes in ways that are compatible with Scripture and sometimes in ways that are not compatible with Scripture, that are contrary to Scripture. And that's what we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of the ways that justice or social justice is used in ways that are not biblical. So, for example, sometimes abortion is referred to as reproductive justice, but biblical justice is not served through a legal right to abortion, which involves the shedding of innocent blood. Biblical justice is not served by labeling everyone as either an oppressor or oppressed. Biblical justice is not served by pitting one group of people against another. Biblical justice is not served by disrespecting and defunding law enforcement. Biblical justice is not served by punishing the innocent or by failing to punish the guilty. Some will claim that every disparity is the result of injustice. But we see in Scripture that that is not always the case. Sometimes people are poor because of injustice. We see this, for example, in Proverbs 13, 23, which says the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. And so we don't want to be ignorant of this. We don't want to dismiss this. There are times when people are poor because of injustice, and we should be compassionate about that. At the same time, we saw last week that sometimes people are poor because of laziness, And so not every disparity is proof of injustice. It might be, it might not be. Again, when the Bible speaks of equity, it is not referring to the equality of outcomes, but everyone being treated equally in society under the law. Much more could be said, but that gives us at least a good idea of what justice is and what it is not in the eyes of of the Lord. The next question then is, what is the role of governing authorities? What part do governing authorities play when it comes to righteousness, justice, and equity? Proverbs chapter 8 verses 15 and 16 says, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just, by me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. And then in sixteen, chapter 16, verses 10 and 12, we read, An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. In Proverbs, we see that the Lord places people in positions of authority to establish righteousness and carry out justice. Government is a good idea. It is God's idea. He is the one who places people in authority. Not everyone has equal authority, but some do have authority, and those who do have authority are called upon by God to use the authority that God has given them to establish righteousness and carry out justice. Governing authorities are meant to rule in a way that reflects God's Rule and reign. We also see this in the teachings to the church. For example, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we read, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, we read, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good the reason we are to be subject to governing authorities is that they are established and instituted by god keep in mind these verses were written in the 1st century in the roman empire the roman empire was not exactly a bastion of righteousness yet this was written to god's people these were the instructions written to the church But again, we see that the governing authorities are appointed to execute God's judgments bearing the sword, meaning the the government has the right to bring judgment, even the death penalty by God. They are appointed to execute God's judgment bearing the sword to punish the guilty but praising those who do good. So what is the role of governing authorities? They are instituted and established by God to carry out justice, to establish righteousness, to punish the guilty, to reward the righteous. Next, what is our hope? When we consider examples from history and look around the world today, it doesn't take long to realize that there are many examples of governing authorities who have failed or are failing to do what God established them to do. Sin has tainted all of creation. All of us are sinners. Everyone in authority is a sinner. So we can think of example of example of example of governing authorities who are failing to carry out justice or establish God's righteousness. The reality of sin, however, does not mean that we do not pray. It does not mean that we do not work for or vote for and hope for Good government here and now. In several places, Proverbs speaks of the goodness of righteous rulers. Chapter 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 21.15 says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. These verses teach us what to pray for, work for, vote for, and hope for. They point to the goodness of righteous rulers in our governing authorities. We can even be thankful when this happens to varying degrees. Jonathan Lehman said, I would rather live under the Pharaoh in Joseph's day than the Pharaoh in Moses' day. So even when this happens, to varying degrees, we can be thankful and grateful. But while we pray, work, vote, and hope for righteousness and justice in our government, ultimately our hope is not in any human authority or institution. No, our hope is in the Lord. In Proverbs 21.1, we read, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And in 29.26, we read, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. A king, president, prime minister, or governor may think he is powerful, but he is but a stream in the hand of the Lord. The Lord holds all things in his hands, and he is in control. The Lord is sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, and ultimately his justice will prevail. I think one of the applications of these verses is that we should never be overly joyed or overly despondent with the outcome of any election. The kingdom of God is not dependent on any election. No election will thwart God's purposes. No election will hinder Jesus from building his church. No election will prevent Jesus from returning to render a final judgment. No election will prevent God's people from entering the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him and he will rule over us with perfect righteousness, justice, and steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, let us demonstrate our confidence in the sovereignty of the Lord, in his plan, in the way we engage and respond to government Elections. Of course, the reality of the final judgment is an important reminder for us regarding God's justice. There will be a final judgment. And, friend, if you are not a Christian, God's justice is a problem for you. You see, God is just. And as we've already seen, justice requires punishing the guilty. The problem is, we are all guilty. See, there's something that humanity all have in common. And that is that we are all sinners who have sinned against God and therefore we are all deserving of punishment. Every single one of us has sinned against God. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Our biggest problem is our sin problem. And we all have the same biggest problem. And God is just. So you see the problem? God is just. The punished must be guilty. We are those who are guilty. But God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way to maintain his justice and yet justify those who are guilty Guilty. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus did so by living a perfectly sinless life, what we have failed to do. He is the only one who was not deserving of God's wrath, who did not deserve to be punished because he was innocent. And yet he went to the cross to take the punishment for the sins of his people, all of whom are guilty sinners. Jesus Christ went to the cross to take the punishment for our sins in our place. At the cross, he not only experienced an excruciating physical death But he also absorbed the wrath of God for our sins in our place. In this way, God justifies the guilty while maintaining his own justice and righteousness. It is glorious. Our salvation is glorious. God is just. He will not compromise his justice. This is a good thing, yet it is highly problematic for us because we are guilty, and God took it upon himself to resolve this problem for us by providing Jesus Christ as a perfect sacrifice to take our punishment in our place. This is why Paul writes in Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, God upholds his justice, his righteousness, and yet justifies sinners who have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died in our place, taking the punishment for us. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again, conquering death. He appeared in his resurrected state to hundreds of people before he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. There will be a day. There will be a final judgment. He will return. Our hope on the day of judgment is not our own works. It's not our own lives. It's not our own efforts to be good. Our only hope on the day of judgment is Jesus Christ. Everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ will be saved. If you are not a Christian, we encourage you to believe in Christ, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and be saved. God is just. We are guilty, but he has provided a way for us to be justified, and he has done so in Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the final question is, what is the role of God's people? First, because Jesus has saved us, we are citizens of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we are loyal to our King Jesus. Philippians 3, 20-21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are primarily citizens of heaven, and our loyalty and allegiance to our King Jesus should be such that all other loyalties and allegiances pale in comparison No loyalty, no allegiance to any political leader, to any political party, to this nation or any other nation on this earth should compare to our loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. He is our king. We belong to his kingdom. That is where our citizenship lies. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. As those who are loyal to Jesus, I can think of at least four things we should do regarding justice and government. There are probably many more things we could say, but we'll go with four this morning. They are pray, respect, seek, and model. First, pray. Pray for those who are in authority. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for those who are in authority, whether you agree with them or not, whether you voted for them or not. Pray for them. Pray for their souls. Pray that they will use their authority in ways that are honoring to the Lord and that are good for the people, pray for those who are in authority regularly. Second, respect. In Proverbs twenty four twenty one, we read, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. We also see this in Romans 13 and First Peter 2, where we are given such commands. We are commanded to honor, respect, submit to governing authorities. We want to make sure that we do this always, not only again with the people with whom we agree or with whom we voted for. We don't want to selectively apply these scriptures. We want to always pray for and respect governing authorities as unto the Lord. That doesn't mean we don't call injustice injustice. It doesn't mean we don't call sin sin. We can speak the truth about governing authorities when they sin and perpetuate injustice, but we, were also, we should do so prayerfully and respectfully. Third, seek justice. There are many ways we can do this. I gave the example of Brian Stevenson, a Christian lawyer at the beginning, seeking to uh, fight injustice in the legal system, the sin of partiality because someone is poor, because of the color of their skin. So he's seeking to fight that, but there are many ways that we can seek justice we do so through our participation in with our responsibility a stewardship of our democratic responsibility we can do so in many more ways than that maybe it involves fighting to end abortion maybe we do so through helping out with the pregnancy resource center providing help for women and children in need by ministering on the sidewalks outside abortion clinics by adopting or providing foster care for children. There are many ways we can do this. We can do this by caring for the poor in our communities. Again, there's many ways we can do this with organizations that are good at this. I'm so thankful for the people in our church who help provide meals for people in our community, provide meals that are delivered to those in need. We can do so by looking to help the poor in our country and other countries. Again, there's many good Christian organizations who are looking to serve those in desperate need of help. Maybe you can help a child get basic needs, food, clothing, education. We can serve refugees in our own community by partnering with organizations like World Relief. I'm thankful for the members of our church who have given money to World Relief, who have volunteered with World Relief to care for refugees in our our own community. All these are important examples We want to look for these opportunities. How can we take what we see in God's Word and apply it to our particular context, to to our situation, to our own community, to our world? All these things are important. At the same time, we do not want to miss what is perhaps our most important responsibility in this area, and that is modeling justice and righteousness within the church community. We, as those who belong to the church universal, are to model the Lord's justice, righteousness, and equity in our local church. We do not want to be so caught up in what is going on in the world around us that we neglect the opportunity we have to demonstrate the righteousness and justice of the Lord in our church family. So how do we do this? One of the ways we do this is by rendering right judgments. When Jesus spoke about the the log and the speck in our eyes, he was not condemning making judgments altogether but he was warning against making judgments in a way that is hypocritical he says, if you're going to make a judgment if you're going to try to take the speck out of someone else's eye take the log out of your own eye first then you'll be able to help your brother or sister with the speck in their eye so as those in the church we need to render right judgments call sin sin hold each other accountable Jesus even was the one who instituted church discipline. There are times when we need to call people to repentance. We need to practice this. We need to demonstrate the Lord's righteousness and justice by calling sin, sin, and calling brothers and sisters to repentance when it is necessary. Another way we model the Lord's justice and righteousness is by the way we care for those in need among us. In Acts chapter 6, a problem arose among the early church when the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the distribution of the food. This problem was brought to the attention of the apostles who appointed men to help resolve this issue to make sure these widows were being cared for. These widows among the church were in fact receiving care. So they addressed this problem. They took it seriously. They wanted to ensure that people within the church family were not being neglected, but were being well cared for. So we want to practice this. We want to make sure we are caring for one another within the church family. No one should be neglected. We do this individually in our relationships with each other, and we also do this collectively as a church through our Benevolence Fund. I'm so grateful for the way that members have contributed to our Benevolence Fund, which we have used to help members in need with very practical resources. This is one way that we demonstrate the righteousness and justice of the Lord within our own community. So we want to make sure that we are caring well for those within our family. One more way that I'll mention that we need to model the Lord's ways is by not showing partiality. In James chapter 2, the church is strongly warned against showing partiality. The negative example that James provided involved the church giving special attention to a rich man while neglecting a poor man. And he says, don't do this. This should not be the case among you. He says, and this, if you do this, you're making a distinction and judging with evil thoughts. Every believer is equally a member of God's family. And we should be showing no partiality to someone based on their socioeconomic status based on their ethnicity, based on their level of education. There should be no partiality, but everyone should be treated equally as a brother and sister in Christ. So we wanna make sure we are demonstrating the Lord's justice and righteousness in this way. These are a few ways that we as a community reflect the righteousness and justice of the Lord. And as we pursue these things together, We reflect God's character and nature. We put on display the goodness and glory of his rule and reign. Every politician, every political party, and every nation on earth has an expiration date. But we belong to Jesus, and his glorious kingdom will never end. And therefore, we need to point people to our king and his kingdom. And therefore, we do so, brothers and sisters... As we do so, we reflect his righteousness and justice and we bring glory to our king, Jesus. May it be so of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are just, that you are righteous. That is a good thing, and yet we acknowledge that that is a problem for us because we are guilty sinners. But we thank you that you have provided a way for us to be justified while maintaining your own justice. Lord, we pray that as your people who have been justified in Jesus Christ, we pray that we would model your justice and righteousness and equity. And we pray, Lord, that as we model these things and pursue this in our community, you will be glorified among us. Help our thinking, help our attitudes, help our actions to be shaped by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.